Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, on the road to Emmaus, as the Lord Jesus opened the scriptures to his disciples, their hearts burned within them as their eyes were opened to what the Bible was about, as to who Jesus was. You did something amazing. So we pray that as we look at these um, verses this morning, indeed as we spend time in nine chapters of genealogy, might we see how all scripture is breathed out by you and useful for teaching, rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Speak to us, please, we pray. We don't simply want a better grasp of these chapters. We want to hear your voice and know you better and love you more. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The book of Chronicles is a book, is a book for people who ever doubt. Uh, people who doubt that God is in control, who doubt that he will keep his promises, who doubt that he's not taken his eyes off the ball and, and missed something or it's all gone a bit wrong. The book of Chronicles is a late history of the people of God from before Jesus. And it was written when they had just returned back into the land again. Um, returned from Babylon and then the Persians take over and they put them back into the land that God promised them. The Persians were incredible. Their kingdom spread from, from India to Ethiopia. Their majesty and their might seemed supreme and God's people had just been allowed to return home. They, they were just starting to rebuild again. They were a few generations in. And they're looking around thinking, how did it come to this? How did it all go so horribly wrong? You look at the Persian emperor of the time, of Cyrus, and he seems so powerful. And it seems like we've only been allowed to come back to the land because he's allowed us to come back to the land. Lord, Lord, is there a future for your people? Is there a future for your promise, a future for your kings? What about the temple, Lord? Lord, will we ever be able to worship again? Really? Lord, what about your promises? What about your covenant to us? Are you, are you a kind of God like all the other gods who, who disappear when things seem to go wrong? A, a time of doubt and confusion for the people of God as they are resettling back into their land. For us? It's tempting, isn't it, to think that politicians, kings, emperors, those in power are those who have control who have the real authority in the world. And yet, you see, the claim of the Bible, and it might make us scratch our heads, but the claim of the Bible is that God is still in charge. And we owe our allegiance to him. And even if at times it seems totally crazy to believe it or to cling to it, God is still in the driving seat. He is still working out his plans and his purposes. And if it's all falling apart, we can still trust him in the big things and in the little things of our own lives as well. Or, or when we've mucked up again and we said, well, last time, that was the last time that thing was going to happen, but it still happened. Or, or we think, God, you, you can't want anything to do with us anymore. Or, or we're not progressing and growing fast enough in Christ's likeness. And I didn't want to be like this at this stage. I can't believe God still wants anything to do with me. Yeah, what we'll see in Chronicles is that he is faithful even when we are faithless. 
when we as individuals, or indeed when we as a body, God is still faithful to his people. He is still faithful to his promises, to his covenant. And we can still trust him. And so I think with a bit of hard work, and actually I've loved preparing this so far, we will see that Chronicles is a very contemporary book. I say it's hard work because after I decided we'd preach on Chronicles back in the autumn, um, I came across this survey that showed, this article that showed, um, Chronicles is the least preached book of the Bible by chapter. Um, so basically what you've got are the, oh, it's gone, that's not what I wanted. Um, on the top, these are the New Testament books, most sermons per chapter. Then we've got on the bottom, we've got the Old Testament books, um, least sermons per chapter over here, and here we have one and two chronicles. Um, which means we're in slightly uncharted territory. There must be a good reason for the fact that churches and preachers don't really bother with chronicles. Um, but we're going to anyway. And I'm convinced that um, the church is missing out as we neglect these two books. There is so much in them for us, and actually they are incredibly contemporary for our culture and our situation now as a church. Um, before we do dive into nine chapters of genealogy, though, um, I want to try and help us get our bearings in First and Second Chronicles and put down some foundations, um, which will help us for today, but will help us for the next ten weeks or so as well, to try and get our bearings. Um, it might feel a bit like it's a bit nerdy or geeky or boring, um, but I think it's really going to help us for the weeks to come. Um, so, hold on to your hat slightly. I want to show you two things. The first thing is that there is a biblical continuity when it comes to Chronicles, by which I mean um, it fits into the Bible as a whole. So, it's worth saying as well, we have them as two books. Initially, they were one book. I mean, it was around about the time of the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. They split them out into two. That's about 3rd century BC. Um, but it means there's a continuity between them, one and two. They sit together, but also with the Bible as a whole. So if you go to the final few verses of 2 Chronicles 36 that Charlie read for us, the very end of, of the book of Chronicles, page 471, if you've got a Burgundy Bible, I wanted to show you this very quickly. I'm going to read from verse 20. I've got it on the screen in tiny font, so if you've got good eyesight, you'll be good. Um, if not, use your Bibles. Um, verse 20, he carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So Babylon to Persia. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests all the time of its desolation. It rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. Now, we'll deal with that in later weeks, but God, in his sovereign plans and purposes, moves the heart of the Persian king, Cyrus, to put God's people back into the land. But then come to Ezra chapter 1, or again, if you've got a tiny eyesight, it's on the screen there. Because I want you to see it's basically the same text. 
Ezra 1 verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. It's basically the same. Basically repeated, which means it's almost certainly, people think, written by the same author. And it there, it sits alongside Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you're not so hot on Chronicles, you may be hotter on Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a similar period with similar ideas going on. Um, we'll think a bit more about the timing as we consider genealogy in a bit. Um, so that's one in terms of biblical continuity. The second is just to say there's also various emphases that you see again and again and again through Chronicles. There are themes and ideas. The writer has an agenda that it's worth us getting to grips with. Um, this book is theological. The Greeks called it, slightly rudely, the book of things left out. They saw it as a bit of a sort of an alternative history, another take on things. But actually what we'll see with the Chronicler week by week is that he deliberately shapes things a particular way because he has an agenda. He repeats material, he adds in extra material from elsewhere. There are different sources that are used, but which means there are particular emphases. Why? Because there are people of God back in the land who are downhearted, lacking hope. They are hopeless, so he wants to show them why they can have hope again. Not just a retelling of the events, it's a reshaping of, and choosing material with a particular reason. A particular group in a particular predicament. It's worth just saying as well, if we are concerned about that, remember that all history has an agenda. All authors have an interpretation, they're writing for a reason. And what are those emphases for our chronicler? Well, we're going to see them in a bit in micro form through the genealogy. But just for now, we'll do a big macro thing in the helicopter right up to try and show you the overall structure of First and Second Chronicles. And they will show us and help us with this overall agenda and emphases that he has. Well done. Keep going. Do you remember the questions we're asking? What about God's covenant? Is he faithful? Does he love us? Is he still with us? Will he restore the temple? Will he... Keep this promise to his kings. How can we prevent this exile happening again? How do we stay in God's favour? And so in terms of structure overall, there are basically four big chunks. The first one are the genealogies that we're going to look at this morning. That's chapter 1 through to chapter 9. It goes all the way back to Adam, we'll see. And then that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, you've got the tribes of Israel, 2 through to chapter 8. And then you've got the returnees from the exile in chapter 9. Um, it's not complete. Again, he cuts corners. There is an agenda for the, the way that he's doing it as he does it. He will focus in on certain individuals and certain families for a particular reason. What you see then from ch chapter 9 of 1 Chronicles through to chapter 9 of 2 Chronicles, and this is the big chunk, if you like, this is the big heart of the book, You've got Saul and David and Solomon. Um, Saul is just really chapter 9 and 10. David, he's kind of the hero, chapter 11 through to 29 of 1 Chronicles. And then you've got 1 to 9 of Solomon. But a particular focus on David and Solomon because the temple is really important. 
because true worship is really important. So there's a huge thing about the temple that we'll get onto. Um, the final thing to say, I, I realise I've just said it's, it's actually four sections. I've stuck it into three, so you can ignore that. There are three big sections. Um, the final thing to say is 2 Chronicles 10 through to 36, where you've got the divided kingdom. And essentially what you've got here is you've got a, a, a sort of downward spiral, a gradual downward spiral. Various kings are mentioned. Um, so it's not just all the way down. There are a few little blips where it goes back up again, but a downward spiral as the kingdom is divided and then eventually returns, um, moves into exile. Their lives are meant to tell us stories. They're meant to be examples. Do you remember the people of God? They're back in the land. They're hopeless, trying to work out how to live, trying to work out their priorities. And so the, the chronicler says, look at these people and do it like this. Or look at these people and don't do it like them. Let me just give you an example of that as well. Um, keep going. We're almost into the, the passage for this morning. Um, go to 2 Chronicles 34 and 35, and you'll see um, a king called Josiah. And there is a lot about Josiah. Chapter 34, you'll see his reforms. You see the book of the law is found. Chapter 35, the people again celebrate Passover. Two chapters zooming in on one good king, one good example. Be like Josiah. But then chapter 36, you've got Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Four bad kings, one after the other. Josiah is the carrot. Be like him. These other four kings, they're the stick. Don't be like that. Um, so the way I'm thinking about it is a bit like a, a focused exam question. Do you know if you go into an exam and you know your stuff and you've got an essay to write, you've got limited space, and you could write a huge amount of things. But our chronicler here is not one of those students who just writes down every last thing they can think of that might be relevant to the particular topic at hand, trying to scrape as many marks as they can. No, no, he is a grade A student. He knows how to be selective. He knows how to make the most of his word limits. He knows how to focus on the important stuff, the right stuff that is needed for the essay, and then to leave stuff out. So there's all kinds of material you will find in Samuel and Kings that you, that you won't find in Chronicles because it's not relevant to his essay. It's good stuff, but it's superfluous stuff. So he's particularly focused. So you won't see, for example, David's adultery with Bathsheba, but you will see still the sin of David. You will see him get it wrong, but with a particular agenda and a particular leaning. That's enough for now, isn't it? No more? That's enough for now. Let's go to the first nine chapters. Um, and we're jumping into the depths of the genealogy, and we're going to see this is the chronicler's account of the family of God. There's a huge amount we could say. We're going to need to use broad brushstrokes. The first thing to point out to you, though, it mentions it in our first heading as well that the NIV puts there. And it's the first word of Chronicles 2. Is that he goes all the way back to Adam. As all good stories do, he starts at the very beginning. Why even do a genealogy in the first place? Samuel and Kings begin with the account of people, with individuals. Why does the chronicler do the helicopter view and give us the genealogy? I think it's because he wants us to see 
the story of God's faithfulness again. He wants to root these people who are just back in the land into their history. God has a plan. God has a people. And then he works forward, name by name, generation by generation. And let's be honest, our danger with genealogies is we either skim over them, we don't really think about the words that we're reading, or actually we just skip them entirely. We get on to the good stuff. But where we skim or where we skip, God's people wouldn't have done that. These people were not just names, because as one writer puts it, each name is a shorthand way of retelling the stories. Each name is a, is a provoking of the whole memory of God at work. It's a reminder they have a shared identity, a common identity, a shared history. It was God who brought them here. God is in charge. Each name triggers a story. And each story triggers a reminder that God is faithful. God is at work because we are so forgetful. And we forget God's past actions. But as the chronicler lists these names for us, so he is listing stories. And as he lists stories, so he's listing God's faithfulness. He's listing God at work. And he goes back as far as Adam, I think, because he wants to remind them that what he is teaching affects the whole world. He will focus it and he will funnel down on Judah. And you will see that Judah is blessed for the sake of the whole world. The story of Judah is connected to the story of the whole human race. But, but right from here, we see God has a plan and a people. And indeed, God's plan and his people is going to affect all people. All of those in Adam, as we might say. The ends of the earth will hear of God. So he starts off by going back as far as Adam. The next opportunity he has to sort of slow down and focus is then is the rest of chapter 1, say verse 27 or so onwards, and you see Abraham. Abraham's bloodline is traced out for us in great detail. And of course, Abraham matters to the chronicler because it is to Abraham that the Lord will make magnificent promises that will shape the rest of the Bible for us. From Genesis 12, the rest of the Bible is shaped by promises to a man called Abraham, if you're um, a regular in church, you will know that. To Abraham, he will promise a land. To Abraham, he will promise a family who will bless the nations. To Abraham, he will promise that his name will be great. To Abraham, he will promise that God will bless him. And you can measure and you can track these promises. And of course, if you are the people of God back in the land, as we'll see, six generations back in the land, and you feel small, and you feel overlooked, and actually you lost the land for a while, or indeed you're in a land that is ruled by the Persians, Abraham is really important. Because do you remember you're asking, can we trust God? Do God's promises still stand? It looks pretty unlikely, because the Persians seem to rule over us at this point. We're back in the land, but... It's not as good as it was. And we've lost a lot of people. And we're really not a blessing to the nations when it comes to it. Does Abraham still matter, God? Is Abraham still important? Adam, Abraham. 
The next key individual then who we focus in on is David. And David is kind of the human hero of Chronicles. Initially, we get his tribe focused in on from chapter 2. 2 verse 3 to kind of 4 verse 23. Um, Judah was listed first, which isn't quite the way it ought to have been, but he's listed first because he's highlighting his authority and his importance. And then at the heart of the names, David and all his sons are mentioned. So if you flick on to 3, verse 1 through to 24. Here is David under the magnifying glass. So 3, verse 1, these were the sons of David, born to him in Hebron. Then in 3, verse 4, these six were born to David in Hebron, where he reigned seven years and six months. David reigned in Jerusalem for 33 years, and these were the children born to him there, dot, dot, dot. Then in verse 10, you get Solomon being brought up. He will have a bit of airtime as well later in the books. But then look at 3, verse 17 to 34. This is really important. Our version actually gives it a really helpful title. Sometimes we kind of diss the NIV chapters, chapter titles that weren't actually there in the original. But actually, this is really helpful. Do you see why it's important? Because this is the royal line after the exile. Do you see, the chronicler is saying to us, people of God, back in the land again. And yet, look, David's family has continued even after the exile. Which means there is hope for the promise of a king. God's promises are not dead. Again, that just gives us a bit of a clue about the author and the timing. Six generations after the return from exile that was about 530 BC, you can kind of work out when we're writing here, looking back on God's history. Final focus. There's Abraham, there's sorry, Adam, there's Abraham, there's David. The final focus actually is an interesting one. Have a guess who it might be. Let's go interactive, not rhetorical. You're all too shy. Chapter 6, it's Levi, which is really interesting. Because do you remember we said that kings and temples are really important to the chronicler? What does it mean for God's promises of a king and one who will rule kindly? What does it mean that how we worship him? So chapter 6, you get Levi, and again you get all their names listed again and again and again. Little interjections and reminders, for example, verse 10. So sometimes with genealogies, you get the same pattern again and again and again. And what we're meant to do is you're meant to go, whoa, you've just changed the pattern there. You've done something a bit different, and we're meant to pause and kind of notice. Well, for example, 6 verse 10. Johanan, the father of Azariah, it was he who served as a priest in the temple Solomon built in Jerusalem for example, just giving us our bearings and helping us to see who these people really were. Or verse 15, Jozadak was deported when the Lord sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. But he doesn't just stop with priests either. The priests get their airtime, but then 31, 32, 6 verse 31 and 32, there's an interruption to the genealogy. These are the men David put in charge of the music in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest there. It's the temple musicians, it's the worship group. 
They ministered with music before the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, until Solomon built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. They performed their duties according to the regulations laid down for them. There's a similar one again in verse 49 on the next page. Um, Their fellow Levites were assigned to all the other duties of the tabernacle, the house of God. But Aaron and his descendants were the ones who presented offerings on the altar of burnt offering and on the altar of incense in connection with all that was done in the most holy place, making atonement for Israel in accordance with all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. You see this emphasis on obedient worship, on true relationship with God, on worshipping him in accordance with the way he has commanded his people to worship him. Because remember, one of the reasons they were booted from the land is that they had forgotten their God, and that there was false worship. And this is the chronicler's beginning to say to us, the way you relate to God matters. This is not just something we take or leave. This is important. It's vital. Again, as you flick ahead, chapter 9, verse 1. You get that kind of in caps lock form. All Israel was listed in the genealogies in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. They were taken captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. Now, the first to resettle on their own property in their own towns were some Israelites, priests, Levites, and temple servants. You see, the, the juxtaposition of their unfaithfulness, so they were removed from the land, yet the first ones back are those who will help them worship faithfully. Israelites, priests, Levites. Those seem to be the key emphases from the genealogy at the start of Chronicles. There's a zooming in on Adam. There's a zooming in on Abraham. There's a zooming in on David. And then with him, the temple and Solomon. And then, of course, there's Levi as well, the priesthood. Which means some of the families get not a lot of airtime at all. Very short thrift. Do you remember? He's writing an essay. Essay. He's got focus words. He's going to miss some stuff out that's really good, but not needed. Which means Saul, for example, in chapter 8, we'll see he is, he is essentially a foil for David. He makes David look good. He is the example of unfaithfulness and how you get it wrong. But Adam... Abraham, David, Levi, they are the key ones. And they reveal to us something of the emphases of the book and some of the broad applications for us. We're going to have a time to think in weeks to come what some of these applications might be, how God's kingly rule affects us, how, how true worship matters, listening to his voice matters, what it means to be unfaithful and faithful. But just as a sort of foundational application... And picking up on that prayer from the beginning, I want you to see how these four elements within the genealogy find their fulfillment in Christ for us. Jesus says, this is a book about me. So how is it a book about him? Lots of ways. Here are just four kind of meandering thoughts. He is the precious jewel to whom they all long for and point to. We saw it just after Easter. Jesus is the second Adam. 
Do you remember the garden? Do you remember Mary? And she sees this second gardener, one at work in the garden, a second Adam almost, a, a new creation beginning on the first day of the week, picking up the Genesis ideas. And where Adam represents and leads a sinful, fleshly humanity, doing things in our own way, in our own strength, for our own glory, seeking to do away with God from the situation, Jesus is a different option, the alternative. And where Adam disobeyed and doubted God's goodness, Jesus trusted, Jesus followed. The Bible says he is the, he is the second Adam. He's not in it for himself, but he's serving others. He's glorifying God. As well as that, of course, he is the, the promise to Abraham fulfilled. Where in Genesis 12, God makes these promises to Abraham. It's not until we find Christ that they are truly fulfilled and answered. It is through Jesus that the nations will be blessed. It is through him that the kingdom will grow and prosper. It is through him, ultimately, that the new heavens and the new earth will come. And indeed, it's those who have faith in Christ and are called children of Abraham who will be a blessing to the nations. This is us. The promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ, in us. Of course, he is the one true Davidic king as well. He is the one from the line of David who is kind and patient and fair and just, who will rule forever perfectly. As he walked on the earth, there were people who cried out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Interestingly, it was often the blind who saw who he really was. Here is the one they had longed for. Here is the king God had promised his people. Here is the one who would rule them with justice and mercy. But as well as Levi, sorry, as well as David, he is the true Levi too. The, the temple system, all of it finds its fulfillment in Christ. Jesus is the means by which we can now worship God. Again, we saw it a few weeks ago in Easter, the temple curtain torn from top to bottom. It's a picture of both judgment on the temple, which would finally be seen in AD 70, but more than that, it's access for all humanity now to God. There's worship, there's relationship, not through a beautiful building, but through a broken person. Not through high priests year after year after year, but through one great high priest. Not through a treadmill of sacrifices but through one sacrifice. Not through the blood of bulls and animals, but through the blood of God's Son. He is the key that unlocks Chronicles. Which means he is the means by which we can have hope. Because the problem in Chronicles is that the, the people have blown it. They had forgotten God. They had walked out on him. They had run after other gods. They hadn't worshipped him faithfully. They, they hadn't listened to the kings that he had given, or the kings indeed didn't listen to him. They had been removed from the land, and they deserved that. And if they're asking, well, what next, or what now, or how did we get here, or how did we lose the land, and how can we be sure, and where is our hope? Well, we don't have quite those same questions this side of the cross. Because the obedience and the death and resurrection of Jesus in our place changes everything. Where the people of God had been disobedient and so had been driven from the land that God had given them, 
where they had been cut off, where they had experienced exile, actually our context is a bit different. Because Jesus was cut off, because Jesus was exiled, because he was removed, because of our disobedience. Which I think means as we read Chronicles... We are meant to see how it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. There are lessons for us. But I think we have a security in Christ as believers that these guys didn't perhaps quite have the same. And so maybe when we ask or we doubt, God, have you forgotten me? Or where is my hope? Or I don't think I can keep doing this. Have I blown it? Is it game over? Is it one sin too many, one sin too big? Well, we can know that Jesus was cut off. So that in Christ we will never be cut off. Or he was forsaken at the cross. So that in him we will never be forsaken. He was exiled. So that we will never have to be. Which means that we can be certain. It means that we can always be hopeful. Because our standing before God does not count upon our obedience. Our goodness. The boxes we've ticked this week. How we are doing. But actually because we are in Christ. And because fundamentally our identity sits with him. He was punished. So that we don't have to be. We can trust his faithfulness. We can trust his love because we are in Christ. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond. Lord, we really do want to thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the security that we have in him as your people. Father, there are all kinds of things that we can learn from Chronicles. All kinds of challenges, all kinds of encouragements. But fundamentally, might we know our, our security, our assurance, because of his faithfulness, because of his love for us. Thank you that he is the second Adam. Thank you that he is the answer to the promise to Abraham. Thank you that he is the king from David's line who would rule forever. Thank you that he is the, the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, the temple, the Levitical priesthood. Thank you that Jesus is the answer. And Lord, our hearts do burn within us as you've opened our eyes to see who he is and how much we need him. Lord, we say that we love you. We thank you for your faithfulness and your kindness to people like us who don't deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.